Lord, take your truth and drive it home to our hearts this day. Help us to understand it and then to live it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I've already announced that I want to speak to you on four occasions about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and I hope that it is almost bringing coals to Newcastle to remind you that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is central to Christianity, to the Christian message, and to the life of the Christian. The resurrection of Jesus Christ explains why we are here on this particular morning. We worship the Lord on Sunday because it is the day of the Lord's resurrection. It explains the worship of the Christian community. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is uh, necessary. We must believe it, that our redemption might be accomplished and that we might have hope as Christians about our future life. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ is necessary that our faith altogether not be futile and empty or vain. You will remember the words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, how he says, If Christ hath not been raised, your faith is vain. Ye are yet in your sins. Then they also that are fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have only hoped in Christ in this life, we are of all men most pitiable. Now I'd like to have you take just a moment and let those words of Paul sink in. We are of all men most pitiable. Think of the pitiable men that Paul could have thought of in this world. Think of the people you know who indeed are deserving of pity. And he says, but we're worse than them. It's far worse if we have hoped, but hoped only for this life because Jesus did not rise from the dead. And thus at the heart of being a Christian is belief in a miraculous event an event which is defiant to natural patterns, an event which is not part of our common experience. And you stop and think about the magnanimous claims of the scriptures with respect to Christ's resurrection. You know, when a child comes home from school on that day, the first day that he comes home to find out that his pet has been run over by a car, we don't bother to offer our children the hope that, well, perhaps the death will not be victorious in that case. Perhaps the pet will still be there to be loved tomorrow. It doesn't even dawn on us to think of that. When we go to funerals, we see, in some cases, the casket opened, and we see the dead body before us. It does not dawn on us to think, well, perhaps next week this person will be with us again. Perhaps his loved ones will be comforted by the cessation of that death spell. It is not part of our common expectation to think of death being terminated by resurrection. And yet the Bible claims that we must believe in that miraculous, that almost anti-natural event that Jesus rose from the dead. An event which is so hard for men to believe in the book of Acts, chapter 17, where Paul goes to the Athenians and declares the resurrection of Jesus Christ, at the hearing of that, they say, we would hear more of this, Paul, and they take him before the council where he might more specifically and systematically lay out his beliefs about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
And upon doing so, he returns to the theme of the resurrection, at which point Luke tells us, and when they heard of the resurrection, they mocked. See, those philosophers in Athens were not, uh, and not at all, ignorant men, credulous men. Paul, you speak of things which are impossible. You speak of a resurrection. We know better. We know how men die and stay dead and how they decay in the grave. Paul, men don't rise from the dead. If your religion calls on us to believe such ridiculous things, to violate the wisdom of the philosophers about us in Athens, then forget it. And so Paul leaving Athens and going to Corinthians, uh, going to the Cor uh, Corinthian church, preaches to them Jesus and how he was crucified and raised from the dead. And writing back to the church in Corinth, you'll remember how he says in his first epistle, For Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in the wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made void. For the word of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us who are saved it is the power of God. Seeing that Jews ask for signs and Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified unto Jews a stumbling block and unto Gentiles foolishness. The Christian message is a stumbling block to men and it is foolishness to men and we don't in any way comprehend the dimensions of Christian faith until we can first understand that it is an offense to human reason that Jesus rose from the dead. This central belief is that which is contrary to our natural experience. And because it is, it poses a problem for us. For what could warrant us, what could justify us in assenting to the resurrection of Christ and trusting that fact? How is faith in the miraculous possible today? What is it that can turn our expectations and our pattern of thinking on its head, turn it completely around and inside out, so that that which we would not be inclined to believe is in fact believed and made the very center of our lives. What could overrule our ordinary standards of thinking and experience? What is it that could so control us that we'd be led to believe against the affirmation of scientists and philosophers that would lead us to believe in the face of mocking and scorn from the world that Jesus conquered death? You know, many modern theologians have not been able to abide the mockery of the world when it comes to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The offense of the cross, the intellectual offense, has been such that they will not crucify their intellect in the eyes of the worldly blind. They will not crucify their intellect. And so, wanting to remain theologians and realizing that you can't eradicate the message of the resurrection from the scriptures, they have engaged in procedures of reinterpretation. They reinterpret the resurrection to fit the patterns of human reason and human expectation. And so we are told by one theologian that the resurrection, if it was to have eternal significance for my life, could not be a historical event. It would have to be an event which is above history, an event in the realm of eternity. Or another theologian, tells us that the resurrection is not to be understood literally, but simply as a symbol of the freedom of human desires, the openness of history, 
to human values. I was told personally by one very well-known Roman Catholic theologian today at a conference in Philadelphia that he believed in the resurrection of the body of Jesus Christ. And we know from Pauline teaching that the body of Christ is the church, and therefore the resurrection of Jesus Christ means that the church rose from the deadness of Jesus, and that is what he thought was the hope of the Christian man. Yes, the resurrection is an offense to human reason. It is a stumbling block, and many theologians won't abide it. It would appear then that the resurrection is central to being a Christian, one who wholeheartedly and with singleness of mind believes that Christ literally, historically rose from the dead. And that central, the centrality of the resurrection calls for us to engage in a determinative act of suppressing a desire to please the world, suppressing a desire to find acceptance in the eyes of men, turning from the self-sufficiency of our own thinking and our own reasoning and our own expectations, and accepting a supremely miraculous work of God, an event that took place contrary to nature. And that belief is the foundation of our lives. Around that belief, everything else turns for the Christian. Well, you see, faith in the fact of the resurrection is not merely an eccentric or odd detail at the periphery, at the outer edge of Christian teaching and experience. It's a central and defining truth for us as Christians. Without it, Paul said, everything else is futile. Without it, there is no new life. Without it, there is no power for holy living. Without it, there is no hope against death. Without it, there is no reason to follow Christ at all. Christianity is baseless, and our lives are empty if Christ is not raised from the dead. And so what I'm getting at, by way of introduction, is that at the very most important spot of our thinking and our living, at the most crucial juncture in our behavior and our affirmation as Christians, stands a belief in an event which is supremely hard to accept one which offends our natural science and human reason, which cannot fit into our intellectual patterns and expectations. The very most critical element of our lives, you see, as Christians, is turned over to that which is in the eyes of the world most unbelievable. Where you would expect the highest caution in devoting your life to some truth, you find a truth which is the most difficult for any cautious man to accept. Well, now, if that's the situation, what is it that determines the Christian's faith in the resurrection? What is it that gives us warrant for resurrection faith? What factor, what principle can have such an authority, such a unique place in my thinking and living as to lead me to believe the most unbelievable where the greatest of cautions is called for? What is the necessary core, the indispensable control over my life and thinking if I'm a Christian? Now, I think to that question, we receive an answer in Luke, the 16th chapter, in a well-known parable of the rich man and Lazarus. And so let's turn from this introduction to ask what it is that leads us to believe the fact of the historical resurrection of Jesus Christ and seek some sort of an answer in Luke 16, in this well-known parable. This parable does have its own particular setting 
and has a number of lessons that can um, uh, be taught to us this morning. However, the thought at the very end of it is my concern. Uh, building to that, though, notice that when Jesus begins to tell the story of the rich man and Lazarus, he's continuing a lesson respecting uh, the right employment of earthly possessions that he had already begun with the Pharisees. In particular, um, it would seem in talking about the lavish richness of this man that uh, uh, eventually died and went to Hades, Jesus is speaking to the needs, to the situation of the Pharisees. Verse 14 in our chapter says, after Jesus taught them that they could not serve God and mammon, they could not serve God and earthly possessions, especially financial uh, uh, monetary possessions, the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they scoffed at him. Oh, they knew better. They knew the law of God better than that. Jesus, to make such a statement, this man's ridiculous. And so Jesus continues his teaching, and he has quite a stinger in the story that he has to tell them. And so he begins by telling them of a man who, a certain rich man, who is clothed in purple and fine linen. In fact, uh, the original gives the impression that it was his habit to dress in purple, fine linen underclothing, and this purple, very difficult dye to get. Purple, only the rich, only the mighty in society could wear it. Purple was his habit, and fine linen underclothes. And he fared sumptuously. He made merry, and he made merry, the Bible tells us, in a magnificent and splendor way. He daily made merry. He daily wore his purple. He daily indulged in the luxuries of life and enjoyable ease. And the Bible, in its stark, dramatic uh, contrast, says, and there was a beggar named Lazarus, a poor man with the common name of Lazarus. His name means God has helped, and certainly that was appropriate, for man hadn't helped him. Only God would be his help. Lazarus, the Bible tells us in our reading this morning, was laid at the gate. That's far too gentle. In fact, the Greek tells us that he was thrust at the gate. People had picked him up and shoved him and said, this is where you stay, Lazarus. And this man who was poor, who was a beggar, who was thrown or flung at the gate of the rich man, laid there on that before the large porch, before the large gate of this palace that the rich man lived in, and he was full of ulcers. He was ulcerated with open sores. By the way, it's fascinating to see how Luke, the physician, uses common medical terminology from the ancient world. And he was ulcerated with sores as he laid at the man's gate. And the only desire that Lazarus had in life was that occasionally when scraps would fall from the table from the rich man's uh, house, fall from the table and become dirty, that when they were thrown out, he might be able to have something to eat. But even then, he didn't have the luxury of choosing what he would eat. He had to fight with the dogs of the city, the pariah dogs that were there waiting for the scraps too. And if he wasn't in a bad enough state, he didn't even have his wounds heal. The dogs were always bothering him and making his wounds fester by licking them over and over again. You know, the... Uh, the way the Bible portrays things is often an offense to Western sensitivities. 
We don't like to think of those stark realities. But Jesus comes and he lays that teaching out. He goes, you cannot believe the sumptuous living of this rich man and how miserable and despicable was the lot of Lazarus as the dogs licked his wounds. And then the Bible says they both died. God's law had provided for the care of the poor. In the Old Testament, we know that if your brother was uh, in a bad financial way and had nothing to eat, that God required you to take him into your own home and to supply for his needs. And this rich man would have no concern for Lazarus. He was like a dog to him. Indeed, as Jesus had taught in the parable of the sowers, riches had choked out the word of God and not given it its due course in the rich man's life. And so he died, and Lazarus died. Proverbs 11 says that riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. While the rich man went into Hades and into torment, notice how beautiful the words of Jesus are, that the angels came and accompanied Lazarus to Abraham's bosom. And to understand that, you must remember that in the ancient world it was the common custom to sit at formal banquets in a reclining position. And so as people were all reclining around a, uh, a place where the table was set, it was uh, customary that uh, one man's head would be near the bosom of another as they all were in parallel laying around the table. And now Lazarus is brought right to the bosom of Abraham as he, pour, as he partakes of the messianic banquet in heaven as Jesus is portraying it here. Lazarus is very, very much blessed. The angels accompany him to the patriarch's breast and the rich man was buried. In contrast to Lazarus' special treatment and reward, the rich man is simply described as having been buried. And then verse 23 tells us that he is to be found in torments. The word for torments here, by the way, is the common word for a rack that is used to torture people. And he is on the rack of torment. And upon that rack, he looks across a great gulf, apparently, and can see Abraham there. And of all things, that beggar who used to stay by his gate, that beggar Lazarus is at the very bosom of the patriarch. Indeed, a great reversal has taken place from the previous life. And that in itself would be worthy of a sermon, something to preach to you about this morning. The rich man had made his choice and he had received his appropriate reward. In fact, the Bible tells us he received in full what he chose to receive. And he asked for earthly delights, he asked for earthly comfort, he received his earthly comfort, but that's all he would receive. And so now, as Luke himself would tell us earlier in his gospel, Blessed are the poor, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the ones now hungering, for you will be filled. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation already. Woe to you who are full, for you will hunger. Behold, there are last which shall be first, and there are first which shall be last. And now Jesus, in telling this parable, shows us how that happens. The first in this life, those who are filled, those who are rich, nevertheless face eternal torment, the rack of torment. But those who hunger now and who are poor and who are last in men's estimations, they shall be first. They shall be received into the presence of God. The imbalances of history will be made right. 
Remember David, how he was really troubled by the fact that the wicked in this world seem to get along so well. He says their eyes bulge out with fatness. They are so well taken care of. They don't seem to be troubled like other men. And David goes on like this, and he says, Until I went into the temple of God and considered their latter end. And so here you see, brothers and sisters, the latter end of a man who didn't know how to live with compassion, who didn't know to follow the law of God and taking care of his brother, a man who had no concern for the kingdom of God, apparently. And you see his latter end. The torment is such that he would be willing to take one drop of water, one drop off the very tip of the finger of Lazarus. That's how bad the torment of eternal damnation shall be. Abraham returns to this request. The answer, no, there is a gulf between us. And that gulf has been put there precisely to prevent any interchange between paradise and Gehenna fire. And you will re remain in that fire and there shall be no relief of your suffering. You might have noticed as we were doing the reading the something of uh, subtle arrogance that remains in the rich man. Here he is in torment, and he's asking Abraham to send Lazarus to do an errand for him, to relieve him. He still sees Lazarus as that despicable poor beggar who needs to serve the rich and mighty. And so now he asks that Lazarus be sent on a different type of errand. He goes, well, if there's to be no relief for me, well, then Abraham, send Lazarus to my five brothers. They still are alive. Send him that, that he might warn them of the torments to come. But that prayer won't be answered either. And to the side, I might remark uh, all the prayers of those who pray to the dead, uh, whether they be Roman Catholics or not, are just as futile. Uh, the dead cannot accomplish such desires for us. Even Abraham the patriarch could not favorably respond or secure what was desired by the rich man. And so prayers to the dead are futile. But in this particular case, a debate ensues. Abraham says, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear the Old Testament scriptures. And the rich man, by way of uh, excuse making, I would say, a rich man in his delusion argues with Abraham. And he says, nay, Father Abraham, no, you've got it wrong, you see. If you'll send somebody from the dead, then they'll get the point. Then they'll understand. And then they'll believe those things which are contrary to human reason. Then they will submit to the scriptures. If but somebody would go to them from the dead. How dramatic that would be. How convincing that would be if you could only send somebody like Lazarus. Send him to my brothers. Reminds me uh, very well of a conversation I had with a girl in high school. Um, I happened to be the president of the student body and she was the secretary of the student body and because of our uh, functions we were called upon to go to a particular uh, conference together and we were riding in the car and I took the opportunity to uh, say some things about Christian faith and the necessity of repentance and uh, she was very interested in those things and talked uh, very um, it seemed open-mindedly about them but as the conversation was wearing on it finally got to the point where she said if only I could believe that there is life after death. If only I could believe that what the Bible says is true. And then she put this stipulation on it, very much like um, the rich man here in Hades. She said, if God would only send somebody back from the dead to tell us what it was like, 
then I'd believe it. Now, I wasn't sophisticated enough then or well enough versed in the scriptures to take her right to this passage. But there are people who even today speak that way. You know, if something very dramatic, very miraculous could happen, if I could see it with my own eyes, then I could believe it. That's all it would take. Just a word from the dead. And we must understand the answer that Abraham gives. He said unto him, If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded if one rise from the dead. You see, the fallacy of the natural man is that if he could only put a stipulation on God's word, if God would only go one step further to confirm his word, then he'd believe it. But Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 2 that the natural man cannot receive the things of the Spirit. They are spiritually discerned, and he cannot know them. The natural man is hardened against the gospel until the Spirit changes his heart. They have Moses and the prophets. If they hear not them, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. That's the stinger in the parable. So Jesus started out talking about the Pharisees and their love of money. And he gave them a sufficient answer, didn't he? You see, things in this life are going to be reversed. You may think that riches are fine, but in the life to come, they may bring eternal damnation and suffering. But the Pharisees, in hearing Jesus, would say, but what right have you to say that to us? What sign do you give us showing that you do these things and say these things? The pervasive refrain throughout the Gospels of the Pharisees wanted Jesus to prove the point. Give us a sign. Make it clear to us. Then perhaps we'll believe. And Jesus says at the end of the parable, puts him to the, into the mouth of Abraham, the answer to the Pharisees. He goes, look, if someone rises from the dead, you still won't believe. Wasn't Jesus right? What did the Pharisees do upon hearing of the resurrection and seeing the empty tomb? They paid guards to lie about it. They persecuted those who were believers. They became a synagogue of Satan, in the words of John in the Revelation. They have Moses and the prophets. One rising from the dead will not be sufficient to bring them to belief if they haven't already submitted. Now, even that goes contrary to our expectations, doesn't it? Because while you may not have approved of the uh, attitude of this young girl that I spoke to a few years ago, I imagine you would think that it's appropriate that if one rises from the dead, that would be pretty convincing evidence, wouldn't it? And Jesus says, it won't function to convince anybody. It won't bring persuasion at all if one has not first submitted to the authority of God speaking in the Scriptures. Isn't it ironic that in fact another Lazarus, a different Lazarus, was raised from the dead by Jesus and brought his testimony back from the dead about Jesus and his power and about him being the Messiah. And the response of the Pharisees was not persuasion, it was not submission to the word of God, it was not repentance, but in fact just the opposite. John tells us in his Gospel chapter 11 at verse 53, so from that day forth they took counsel that they might put him to death. Don't you see how amazing that is? At just the point where a voice from the dead came convicting them of their sins, they, John says in terms of the structure of his gospel, that was the turning point. They had had it. They were not going to listen to this Messiah. They were going to crucify him if that's what it would take to silence him. 
One's attitude toward the Word of God written, to the inherent authority of God speaking in the Scriptures, determines his ability to trust the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Miracles and personal experience and rational argumentation will not do it. If a man does not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will he be persuaded if even the Lord of glory rises from the dead. They plot to put him to death. They pay soldiers to lie, and they kill his followers. That's the response of the natural man. Now, Luke, in writing his gospel, it's, uh, I think it's significant that it's Luke in writing put him to death. They pay soldiers to lie, and they kill his followers. That's the response of the natural man. Now, Luke, in writing his gospel, it's, uh, I think it's significant that it's Luke in writing the gospel that records this particular story for us. So if you'll turn to the end of the gospel of Luke, chapter 24, you'll notice that he records for us also the experience of those who are on the road to Emmaus after Jesus has been crucified and buried. And now they know that the tomb is empty. But somehow, obtusely, they do not get the point. They don't understand that he's resurrected from the dead. And so Jesus appears to them, and in speaking and responding to their doubt, says in verse 25, And he said unto them, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe all that the evidence would tell you when you walk into that empty tomb. You'll have difficulty trying to find those words in the scripture. That isn't what Jesus said, although it may very well be our natural response. Well, look, the evidence is before you. How dull can you be? He rose from the dead. Jesus says, Oh, foolish and slow of heart, you believe all that the Scriptures have said. The Christ who suffered these things and then enter into his glory, and beginning from Moses and from all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the Scriptures the things concerning himself. In verse 44, you read, And he said unto them, These are my words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things might needs be fulfilled which are written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. Then opened he their minds that they might understand the scriptures. And he said unto them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and rise again from the dead the third day. Jesus takes his disciples to the scriptures. Luke seizes upon that, for he sees, he sees the connection between that fact and the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. You see, if men will not submit to the authority of God speaking in the scriptures, they won't submit to someone who is resurrected. Or a voice from the dead will not change their minds. And for that reason, again, Luke speaking now, Luke uh, recording the fact for us, in the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 2, conveys to us the message of Peter on the day of Pentecost. And Peter on the day of Pentecost says, Acts 2, verse 24, Whom God raised up, having loosed the pangs of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. Notice that claim. Peter is not saying simply, in fact, Jesus rose from the dead. Against all expectations, you see, he came back he came to life, even though his body was dead. He said it wasn't possible that he wouldn't come back to life. It was impossible to think that death should hold him. 
And why was it impossible? You see, Peter's got the point. It was not possible that he should behold and of it, for David saith concerning him, and then he quotes the psalm. He says, because the word of God said it, it was impossible that it not be true. They have Moses and the prophets, and if they hear not them, they will not believe. They will not be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. Peter knew the foundation of his faith. It wasn't human experience. It wasn't human reason. It wasn't that his own mind was satisfied. In fact, it was Peter himself who tells us in his second epistle, chapter 1, and at verse 19. And we have the word of prophecy more sure. He has just said that he was an eyewitness of the glory of Jesus Christ. He saw him in the flesh. And he says, but we have the word of prophecy more sure. God's word has higher authority and power and control in his life than even his own personal experience. Well, I began this morning by asking, how can it be that at the point where things are most crucial, that we make our decisions with utmost confidence and be sure of what we do, that it's at the very point where we decide on that which will direct our lives as Christians, that we can believe what is most unbelievable to the world. How is resurrection faith possible? The answer, as we find it in the Gospel, is simply this. It's only possible because of the authority, the unique authority of God's Word. When God speaks in the Scriptures, that settles it. That makes it sufficient to be believed. The Scripture is its own sufficient authority. And the uh, words of our confession put it so beautifully when we read that the authority of the Holy Scriptures, for which it ought to be believed and obeyed, dependeth not upon the testimony of any man or church, but wholly upon God, who is truth itself, the author thereof. And therefore it is to be received because it is the word of God. Why do you believe that Jesus rose from the dead? Is it because you've heard clever arguments about the empty tomb? Because you've read little pamphlets about the evidence that's supposed to be there? My friends, if you believe in the resurrection of Christ, you don't believe it for such reasons as these but you believe it for the authority of God speaking in the Scripture. They have Moses and the prophets, and if they'll hear not them, they won't hear whatever the evidence may be. So my message to you this morning concludes by saying that there is nothing which has higher credibility for the Christian. Nothing has higher authority. Nothing is more firm than the Word of God. It's firmer than my own experience. It's firmer than the wisdom of the philosophers. It's firmer than the expectations of the natural scientists. Jesus put it this way in his parable. The wise man builds his house upon the rock and the foolish man upon the sand. And those who hear my words and do them are likened to the wise man. Only submission to the authority of God speaking in the Scripture will bring one beyond the offense of the cross to resurrection faith. Abraham is the father of the faithful. And we read in Romans, the fourth chapter, the faith of our faithful father Abraham. Beginning at verse 16, Paul says, For this cause it is of faith that it may be according to grace, to the end that the promise may be sure to all the seed 
not to that only which is of the law, but to that which is also of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, the father of many nations have I made thee, before him whom he believed, even God, who giveth life to the dead, and calleth the things that are not, as though they were, who in hope believed against hope to the end that he might become a father of many nations, according to that which had been spoken, so shall thy seed be. Abraham believed in hope according to the word that had been spoken, and he believed against hope, against the expectations of those who know the natural and biological processes. Abraham believed the word of God, the one who calls to life things that are dead and calls into existence the things which are not. And so if we take the Bible as the word of God, if we have resurrection faith, if we believe in the fact of Jesus' resurrection, we can only do so by, first of all, coming by way of the scriptures of the Old and New Testament. One cannot become a Christian unless he must first intellectually submit to the Word of God. He must set apart the scripture as the standard of all thinking and all living for him. If we take the Bible as the Word of God, it is the standard of life the standard of truth. And if certain teachings and certain courses of action that are set before us agree with the Bible, then we can endorse and follow them. But if they disagree with the Word of God, we cannot support them, no matter what our peers may say, no matter what the experts may say, no matter what our society may say, we have Abraham and the prophets, and we will submit to the authority of God speaking through them. And so we test every movement as Christians, and we test every thought and every action by the Bible. If they agree with the Bible, we approve of them. And if they disagree, we oppose them. No matter what external success that movement may see, whatever favor it may receive in the superficial estimate of those who are unbelievers. And so we do not prefer those who have resurrection faith, those who come to the Bible in faith, do not prefer human experience or public opinion polls or the latest opinion of the experts, or even what is called the Spirit of Christ in some vague way speaking in the Scriptures. We don't trust the opinion of the collection of believers or the councils of the Church if they disagree with the Scripture. We are people of the Word of God written, and that, my friends, is what the resurrection first and primarily means to you. You cannot believe the resurrection unless you will sacrifice your intellect and say, God says so, his word declares it, and that is sufficient for me. The Bible is completely true in what it says regarding matters of fact, completely authoritative in all its commands, and I submit wholeheartedly to the word of God. That's Christian faith. And anything less than that is a fraud. Again, our confession teaches us about saving faith, that by this faith, a Christian believes to be true whatsoever is revealed in the Word for the authority of God himself speaking therein, and acts differently upon that which each particular passage thereof containeth, yielding obedience to the commands, trembling at the threatenings, and embracing the promises of God for this life and that which is to come. That's not a popular doctrine. I don't expect it to be popular this day. For it's not in accord 
with the wisdom of the world. And a man cannot affirm what I am telling you this morning. He cannot affirm it seriously and really act in accordance with it and at the same time hope to enjoy the favor of the world or even the favor of the church in most denominations this day. The Bible's unique and unchallengeable authority extends to the facts, all the facts which are recorded in the scriptures, every matter of history and science. If there are no reliable facts in the Bible, there is no good news for us, and if there is no good news, there is no hope, and we are of all men most pitiable. The Bible is quite useless as a document unless its authoritative record extends to the facts. And so we would today affirm that the Bible is completely without error in its original manuscript. There are no errors to be discerned there. But more than that today, I would say that if you have resurrection faith, if you submit wholeheartedly to the Word of God speaking in the Scriptures, if you see the unique authority of the Bible over your life, then it must become foundational to your life. And that means you must read it. And that means you must repent when you see how you've departed from it. And that means it must control your life and lead you into paths of righteousness and make you a holy person, completely devoted to obedience to the Savior. Indeed, if you have resurrection faith, you must be transformed as a Christian. The Bible's unique authority means that it is uppermost in my life, that nothing directs me more than it. The controlling factor of my existence is the guidance and the requirements of God's Word. And so that calls for singleness of devotion and holiness of life. But this doctrine of the Bible and its unique authority is a very blessed doctrine as well. If a man founds his life upon the Scriptures and submits wholeheartedly to them, then he can indeed be very joyous and quite undismayed in all of the sorrows and all of the battles and all of the dismays that may be brought to his life. Even as Lazarus, having his wounds licked by the dogs, could anticipate in the truth of Scripture the blessings that would follow. The 19th Psalm puts it well when it tells us all of the things that this unique book should do to us. The law of Jehovah is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of Jehovah is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of Jehovah are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of Jehovah is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of Jehovah is clean, enduring forever. The ordinances of Jehovah are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, and much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the droppings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is thy servant warned, in keeping them there is great reward. Resurrection faith restores the soul, makes the simple wise, rejoices our hearts, enlightens our eyes. Indeed, God's word is clean, it is true, it is righteous, it is sweet, it is more desirable than gold. And in the keeping of it, there is great reward. And that's to say, isn't it dangerous to submit to the scriptures in that way? I mean, the world tells us otherwise. Isn't it a dangerous thing to reject all other authorities and to submit unreservedly to the scriptures without any hesitation, without any qualms and qualifications? Isn't that dangerous? And the answer is yes. 
It's dangerous. It's a very dangerous thing. So it will put you sharply in conflict with the whole current of our age. And it's dangerous because it will commit you to doing whatever the Lord may require apart from your previous plans and expectations. But if it's a dangerous thing, it's a blessed thing as well to have life-giving refreshment from God's Word, to hear the sure and eternal, living and true, sovereign God speak to us. Utter and abandoned, submissive faith in the Scriptures will bring a corresponding reward of God's favor, new life and salvation and guidance and stability and hope. Now that's what I want to tell you about when I preach about the resurrection. And if you're going to hear that in faith, you must come first of all by saying, Lord, I'm abandoned to you. You speak, I will hear. You speak, and I will do. God grant that we may not be slow of heart like the men on the road to Emmaus, that we may not be slow of heart this day to hear all that the Scriptures say, but rather anxious and willing to found our lives and our every belief on the truth of God's Word. God make us then servants of the living Lord rather than the servants of men. May we be humble ambassadors of a resurrected King who can with all honesty, uh, all honesty say, as even the Old Testament prophet Micaiah said, as the Lord liveth, what the Lord saith unto me, that will I speak. Amen. Father, we ask this day that you will break down our resistance that you will soften our hearts, that you will enable us by your Spirit to submit to the truth of the Scripture, even in the most remarkable and unbelievable of places, that we would be satisfied with the testimony of Moses and all the prophets, and not long after the satisfying and confirming word of the world, that we would not long for status in the eyes of those who are blinded, but, Lord, we would not say that your word is sufficient once it fits into my expectations and plans, but that we would abandon ourselves to you and have the faith that Abraham did against hope, believing according to the word that was spoken. And in that resurrection faith, give us new life today, for it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.